I want to open with a story that I picked up from a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Ma- Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's actually one of my favorite podcasters. That's where I'm most familiar with Malcolm. But he tells a story in this book about a town in Pennsylvania, Rosetta, Pennsylvania, where something mysterious and crazy happened. Uh, in the 1860s, it was settled by some Italian immigrants who came over and established like a new Rosetta. They were from Rosetta, Italy, I think it was their hometown, and they come to Pennsylvania and they create this awesome community. And very much they modeled it after their hometown. And so uh, up until the 1950s, and so this is almost 100 years, this community remained virtually unchanged. It was said that when you walked in Rosetta, it was like you were walking into Italy. The only language you would hear would be Italian. The only food you would eat would be Southern Italian food, Whatever that is, it sounds, I like Southern food, right? <laughs> right, gotta be Southern and Italian. I know it's not the same thing. Uh, the original immigrants built the town modeled after their home city, and so the, the layout was very similar. They built a, a, a big church building. Uh, I think they were Catholic, and so they built this big church building that looked just like their church building at home. They even named it the same thing. They planted vineyards, they had parties as if they lived in Italy, and it remained virtually unchanged for 100 years. It was also virtually unheard of until a guy named Dr. Stephen Wolf heard about it in the mid-1950s. Now, uh, Dr. Steve, Stuart Wolf, Dr. Stuart Wolf had a colleague who was also a physician in a nearby town to Rosetta, and they were just talking about doctor stuff one day, and the doctor that lived near Rosetta said, you know, I've been practicing for 17 years, I get patients from all over, and I rarely find anyone from Rosetta under the age of 65 with heart disease. Now, today we'd be like, oh, no big deal. Like, not that many people have it anymore. But in the 1950s, you got to know, it was like rampant. It was at critical level. People all over the nation were dying of heart disease, heart attacks as a result. And so, uh, anytime a doctor would hear about a place with lower heart disease, they'd say, we got to figure out what's going on there. Maybe we can learn something. So Dr. Wolf, along with this other physician, decided to do some research. They go to Rosetta and they hosted dozens of interviews. They took blood samples. Uh, They ran tests. And their findings were staggering. They discovered some things. One thing they discovered is that the people in Rosetta didn't eat any healthier than anybody else in America. That wasn't why they had better health. They also smoked just like everybody else. In fact, most often they smoked unfiltered cigars, okay? So it wasn't that. They weren't more active than the rest of the population in America. Yet the local death rate in Rosetta for uh, for men over 65 from heart disease was less than half the national average. In fact, the findings also said, Gladwell quotes that uh, death by all causes was 30 to 35% less than the rest of America. What is going on? It blew the researchers' minds, and so they get some more minds on it. They get more doctors, more scientists, more researchers. They ask more questions. They draw more blood. They go everywhere, and they're like, what is going on in Rosetta? And so the researchers come to this conclusion at the end of their study, and I quote, there was also no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, and very little crime. They didn't have anyone on welfare, They even looked at peptic ulcers. They didn't have those either. These people were dying of old age. That was it. What in the world was happening in Rosetta? So to explain the anomaly, they kept researching. They're like, what are they eating? Like maybe there's some special, you know, herb or spice or meal that they have regularly that we just don't know about. They looked into all that, nothing. 
nothing different from the rest of America that they could find on like a, on a lot of different levels. And, and then they discovered through some sociologists that were part of the study, something truly unique to this time in America and really almost anywhere in the world now. The solution was the town of Rosetta, not geographically, but the people themselves. The culture of Rosetta was deeply rooted in a 100-year-old community uh, where people made a point to talk to their neighbors. They wouldn't pass someone on the street without saying hello and asking about the family. It was normal for three generations of a family to live under the same roof and share the duties and responsibilities of family. 80% of the men in the town were involved in at least one community group. These guys, these people would gather together in each other's homes to play cards, to talk, to share meals. And the conclusion that Dr. Wolf and his team came to was that these people were living longer because they had each other. That was the only difference. They were a tightly knit, inter interdependent community. Isn't that interesting? So I, got, I was like, I read it and I was like, that just seems like, that's a neat story. I looked up, there's some great videos on YouTube you can find about it, there's other articles. It's a true, almost anomaly and mystery this group of people. We're in a teaching series right now called Better Together, and our goal is to emphasize the importance of community, specifically community centered around Jesus and what it does to our life. And we live in a world that has just spent a huge percentage of our time in isolation. I mean, we had a long period of time where there was like this shelter in place order, and we're doing isolation, and we're doing quarantine, and all these things, and we're getting to the point where we're scared to be close to people, and it's not good. It's not healthy for our psyche, even for our physical health, to be alone. And so it's timely that we remind ourselves that God created us to be in, to live in, to operate in community together. And so in our first week of the series, we went back to the book of Acts, and we studied the early church, and we saw what community meant to them, and we saw that they shared everything in common so that there was no one without need, and we unpacked that a little bit. Last week, we talked specifically about the importance of worship together, like you know, singing songs together, reading the Bible together, praying together, even out loud and in groups, and how that, you know, completely changes how our, our relationship with God can go. And today, I want to take another shift. By the way, if you missed any of those, I'd lo love to point you to our podcast uh, on pretty much any podcast provider, and we also have these videos are archived on YouTube, on our YouTube page, so go catch up if you'd like to hear some more of that if you missed it. Today, I want to talk about the power of togetherness to heal us. To heal us. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, a lot of even physical sickness. And there's power in togetherness to hear that, heal that. Uh, there are several lessons to be learned today. And to get there, we're going to look into God's Word as we always do. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it up. We've got some free Bibles back there by the door uh, on a gray shelf back there. If you need a Bible, go grab one. You can keep it for yourself if you need a Bible to keep, uh, or just use it for the service if you'd like and put it back. Either way is fine. You, um, and we're going to be in the book of Mark. So the Mark is in the New Testament of the Bible. It's one of the four biographies of Jesus that we find in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so like in that last third of your Bible, and we're going to be in chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2, we're landing in a space in Jesus' journey, his, his like public ministry, where he's at the very beginning of it. Uh, his reputation has begun to spread, but he's going to be back in what was considered kind of his home base for a long time, in the northern part of the region he was in, in Galilee, in the city of Capernaum. Uh, and we're going to land in a place that he's probably been to before. And so... Um, 
This house that he's in is most likely uh, either one of the really close families of Peter and Andrew, uh, who were from Capernaum also, or maybe just someone that he knew before. We don't know. We speculate, but there's a good chance that that was the place he'd been before. And we're just going to pick up. We're in this house, and Jesus is thrown down to a big crowd. Remember, the book of Mark, we've studied this a few different times. The book of Mark is the shortest biography of Jesus. He's often called the gospel of action because he's all about get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. So this is a very short story, but it's packed with meaning. So here we are. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. So a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Okay, so we find Jesus, he's in a packed house, literally a packed house, standing room only. I'm imagining people standing outside the, you know, building, looking in through windows, trying to lean up against the doorway just to hear what Jesus has to say. And we've got the average population showing up in droves. These are the Capernaumists, the people that live there, the Capernaums. Um, we've got probably the homeowners. We've got the disciples of Jesus. There's another group of people that's there that they're not going to show up until later, but I want to go ahead and put it in your brain that they're in the room. We're going to call these people the religious leaders. Later, I think in this translation, they're called the teachers of the law. The reason it's important to know that they were there, because they're a little bit distinct from the other people who had gathered, these people made it their business to make sure that everybody was following the rules. And this is a Jewish society, and, and largely their government and their culture was based in Old Testament law, and so there were certain teachers and, and religious leaders who knew it very well, and they would kind of come to gatherings like this and make sure everybody's following the rules, particularly when Jesus was around, because there were things that Jesus was teaching, and they were like, I don't know that you have the authority to say that. Often people would say, Jesus teaches like someone that's got authority like we've never heard before. And so they often would come in, and you'll find this in other places in the Gospels, where these religious teachers come in, and they're kind of trying to trap Jesus. They want to catch him saying something, you know, a little bit not technically right, and they're a little bit legalistic. And so that's, I, I, maybe I'm cynical, but I think that's why, that they, why they were there. So they showed up. One other group of people needs to show up, but they're running late. Maybe you can relate to that. You know, they're running late. They're not there yet. We're going to find a group of four people and a guy uh, who was paralyzed who show up. We don't know anything about these guys, but look at it in verse three. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. So we don't know these guys, we don't know their names, we don't know the, the paralyzed man. I don't know if he was a quadriplegic or maybe just didn't have the use of his legs or if there was some other paralysis going on, we don't know. It makes sense that maybe they were running a bit, little bit late because their friends had to help him get there, so maybe he slowed them down a little bit. But what we do know is two things. The first thing we know is this, they believed that it was very important to get their friend in front of Jesus. Perhaps because they had heard the rumors that Jesus could heal people with disabilities. Maybe that's something they had heard or for some other reason. And, uh, and we also know that they were very driven to do anything it takes to make that happen. We learned that in the very short, short story in verse 4. Okay, stick with it. This flies by. Like I said, this is the gospel of action. Since they could not get him into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof, which is... Logical, you know, anytime the party's a little bit packed, what do you do? You make an opening in the roof by digging through it. And then they lowered the man down on the mat he was lying on. And so the, I just imagine one of the guys in the group, and I imagine like I would have been that guy. It was like, man, we can't get in there. I got an idea. And then he tells them, they're like, dude, 
this isn't our house. He's like, yeah, 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 but I know Thaddeus. He's a good guy. Like, and I'm a roofer. I'll fix it, right? I don't know. And I don't know what the process was. Uh, some things you can know about these houses is that in this time, there probably was a staircase that went up to the top of the house. They would use the top of their house. It was flat. They'd use it the way we might use a patio or a front porch. It wasn't uncommon to be up on the roof. And it wasn't constructed the ways ours are. Our roofs are very difficult to cut holes in. I will tell you that. I re-roofed my house last summer. It was me, my wife, my two kids, and Phil. Philip Murray. God bless you, Philip. Where are you? Can we give Philip a round of applause? Yeah. It was hot. It was 199 degrees, and we were on the roof, and Philip called me. He's like, hey, what you doing? You need some help? I'm like, yep, come here. I didn't tell him what we were doing. Um, so we got up there. It's hard to roof a house and to tear a hole in it. It would have been easier. Uh, this most likely was built out of just more of kind of sticks, wood, and kind of mud, and I don't know, I wasn't an engineer in the first century, but it would have been much easier. Here's the thing, I don't think that the thing to focus on is how hard it would be to put a hole in the roof, because with the right tools you could put a hole in my roof, or this roof, I don't recommend it. I want to focus on how bold it was. This was not his house. You don't just be going to people's house putting holes in the roof. Okay, so there we are, and look what happens in verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, time out. I love that he says when he saw their faith, because when I picture this story, I remember someone told me this story when I was a kid, and anytime I tell this story, I've got to give you this visual in case you don't have it. I have spoken to crowds like this many times. I've been in houses speaking to crowds, and just the thought of I'm standing there talking and suddenly like, you know, the sheetrock starts to crumble and fall down on my head, and insulation's falling down, next thing you know, there's like light breaks through, and then a dude, <laughs> like a whole dude, not part of a dude, the whole guy, okay, and he gets lowered down, and it says when he saw their faith, it's not like when he saw the dude, or when he saw their little heads peeking over the hole in the roof, when they saw, when Jesus saw their faith, the guy's on the ground now, he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, immediately, the dude that owned the house is like, I'm not so sure that I've forgiven them yet. <laughs> but your son, son, your sins are forgiven. Um, I don't know how this guy felt about things in that moment. I imagine he was a little bit nervous. He might have been the whole time like, guys, please don't, guys, 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 please don't. I don't know what this guy was thinking. We couldn't see his face. We couldn't hear what he said, and, and Mark skips past it. But have you ever, like, on your birthday or on Christmas morning, you go to open a present, and you're pretty sure you know what's in there, and you go to open it up, and it's socks. Yay, I sure could use some more socks. And you thought it was something else, but instead it was something that maybe you weren't expecting. I'm picturing that this guy had it, his hopes up that Jesus might heal him of paralysis, and then Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I just wonder if this guy's like, oh, thanks, socks, <laughs> you know? That's not what I expect. Or what could be completely wrong. He could have been blown away that this famous holy man had blessed him. That's actually also a very likely thing. But in verse chapter 6, we get to the real meat of the story. When you read this story in a modern context, if you were to teach it to a Sunday school class today to our kids, you and I would focus on the fact that there's a man on the mat, and spoiler, Jesus is eventually going to heal him of his paralysis. And that's what we would focus on, Jesus' ability to heal. But that is not why Mark wrote this story. Mark wrote this story to make a point about Jesus' authority over sin and his divinity. And we'll see how this plays out, because remember I told you there was that group of religious leaders in the room? 
Well, one reason that they came to stuff like this was that if somebody like Jesus said something that they disagreed with, specifically something they thought was sinful, they would throw a fit. And they would do everything they could to you know, prosecute this guy to every inch of the law. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Blasphemy is uh, it's a word that means to claim the authority of God, or maybe even to pretend to be God. Okay, Blasphemy in first century Jewish culture is a crime punishable by death. You don't be claiming the authority of God, especially things like this. They say, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So what Jesus has just done, telling this man, son, your sins are forgiven, all willy-nilly like, this is a major no-no. Sin is sin because it is an offense to God, okay? Let me pack this in a different package. Okay, let's say uh, Aaron was just up here leading worship. We're good buddies. Let's say I do something really mean to Aaron, okay? I offend him. I quote sin against him, okay? If I want forgiveness, I need to go to Aaron and ask for forgiveness. I can't go to the boy bagging my groceries one day and be like, you know what, man? And so I said that to Aaron. I felt really bad about it. And so, you know, could you, could you forgive me for that? And the guy's like, uh, sir, paper or plastic? That was the question. I don't know what you're like. We can't just go to someone else and get forgiveness from someone else. You follow? And so the idea is only God can forgive sin. It's a form of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. And so basically they're saying, Jesus, who do you think you are? You can't tell this guy his sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Jesus, by claiming to have authority to forgive sins, was making a statement, a statement that he's going to back up time and time again, that yes, I do. I do have authority. And he baits these, these teachers because he's, he's got a little zinger coming in a second. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. I love that. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're thinking in their hearts, and he says to them, why are you thinking these things? And what Mark doesn't say is that the teachers go, how did you know we were thinking that? But he keeps on. He says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this man, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has, that's the nickname that they use for Jesus, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, and he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of all of them. And this, I love this little phrase, this phrase right here is why Mark wrote this story out. This amazed everyone and they praise God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus knew what he was doing. His entire mission in this whole uh, season of his life was to leave no doubt in the people's minds who saw him who he was and the authority that he had and his plan to why he was there and what he was going to do. Because one day he was going to expect people to believe that he had risen from the dead. He was going to make some very audacious claims that he was God in the flesh. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He hasn't made a lot of those claims yet. And so there is never a time in Scripture where you see Jesus do a miracle that he's not also doing it to show his authority and his power. 
It's really convenient for the blind people who can then see, for the lame people who can then walk, for the, all, the leper who is then healed. It's really convenient for them, but there were a lot of other lepers and a lot of other blind people and a lot of other paralyzed people. Jesus just wasn't over here, you know, healing people left and right. That actually wasn't why he did that. He did that so that as people saw it, they would realize that, man, if he has authority in this avenue, perhaps he has authority in spiritual avenues. And so this moment is probably the moment that Jesus had been thinking about all day long. Now, I wrestled with using this story today. I want to be transparent with you here. I don't ever want to say something that the Bible is not saying, okay? And uh, because I think that the greater lesson of this story is what I just said. The greater lesson of this story is that Jesus does have authority to forgive sins and that he proves that time and time again by showing his divinity in a lot of the things that he does. Um, And it was Mark's purpose to highlight that. But meanwhile, there's this man Now, this man forever has become known as the man on the mat, and I want you to catch the irony of that, because at the end of the story, he is not a man on a mat anymore. When he becomes an old man, he's like, stop calling me the man on the mat, I'm the man that walks home. That's the man I am. But he becomes remembered for, for, for his disability, and if it wasn't for that story playing out, this would have been a different story, wouldn't it? So I want to, so the main point, I made the main point of the story, but I think there's a second point here. And we're talking about being better together and how we are better in healing together. I bet you that this guy was really thankful for his four buddies who got up early that morning and picked him up on his mat and made sure that he got to Jesus even when it was too crowded for them to get into the house, who went out on a limb and boldly cut a hole in a dude's roof and awkwardly lowered him in front of this famous rabbi. I bet he was thankful for those guys. Uh, I think this is also a story about community. I think it's also a story about togetherness. And so what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to give you what I think are three really good uh, takeaways about togetherness too. So maybe what you really needed to hear today was about the authority and the power of Jesus. And that is ultimately the undergirding of everything we do as the church. But I think it's also important for us to see the healing that can happen in togetherness. And so here are the three things. The first one is this. We're better together to overcome our weakness. Um, This was a man who was dependent on other people for like virtually everything. And if it wasn't for his friends picking him up and bringing him to Jesus that day, man, he wouldn't have had that opportunity to even help Jesus make that point. Make no mistake, Jesus could have made the point in another way, and he does in many other scenarios. But today, it was his day, and his buddies made it possible for him to be part of that story. Now, weakness is an interesting thing, because when I look at people uh, with disability, uh, specifically, I've been watching the Paralympics this, this last week. Anybody catch up on that? Like, we watched the, like, the the mainstream Olympics, and we kind of forget about these other amazing athletes who have disabilities. I watched some of that this week, and I was, guys, I watched the dude. He had one leg and no arms, and he broke a Paralympic record in the backstroke. What? Like, I can't, like, race regular people with two arms and two legs. Like, he is the fastest backstroker in the Paralympics, and he has one of four limbs. Some of the other swimmers had all four limbs. 
So I don't want for a second to say because someone has any disability or any weakness that they're completely useless. Obviously, there's so much potential there for all of us with our weaknesses. But what I do know about this guy, because I was watching the broadcast, is that he was very dependent on other people for other things. For example, in the backstroke, this is not a dive off the diving board thing. This is a push off the wall thing. And to do that, you've got to hold on to the side of the wall. If you've been in a swimming pool before, you've experienced this. And because he wasn't able to do that, he held this rope between his teeth. Someone had to put that there for him. Someone helped him get out of the pool. He would have been able to break those records without the many coaches and assistants that helped him get to practice every day. It was his own dis- determination and his own willpower and his own, you know, he did that. But it was community that helped him get there. Not to mention what it must have been like for this guy to grow up uh, as a person with major disabilities and, and the insecurities that maybe he felt and the things that he had to deal with and put up with. We all have weaknesses. And it is tempting just to hide them or just try to muscle through them, but don't. Because if you want to realize the full potential that God has for you in your life, we are better together. Let somebody pick you up on your mat every now and then, or put the the rope in your mouth, so that God can do through you what only God can do. And I believe that God placed these four people in this guy's life to make a story happen. And I believe that God has placed us in each other's lives. We are better together to overcome our weakness. Here's the second big thing that that I pull out of it. We're better together to overcome our sin. Now, I cannot overstate that you cannot overcome your sin by your own power or even by all the power that I could muster or even if we, I don't know, you gotta remember Captain Planet. uh, Even my age, you remember Captain Planet. All these kids, they had powers, but with our powers combined, we are Captain Planet. Like if the whole church used our powers combined, I can't forgive nobody's sin, okay? So I can't overstate how vital it is that Jesus does what he does to overcome our sin. Him giving his life on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, the spilling of his blood, that is huge. But I also know the scripture teaches us that it is vital that we come together to overcome sin. The book of James says that we should confess our sins to one another. There's many times where we see the value of someone who is broken being brought to repentance because of accountability. Someone saying, hey, that's not okay. A story in my personal life that I, this is huge and I've shared it before, but I've got a couple of men that I meet with here at our church, or two guys. We do it something at our church called micro groups. And a micro group, just as a little commercial, is a group of three to five people who choose to meet together every week or as often as possible to uh, hold each other accountable and to grow together in their faith. And so we've got some resources on our website to how to start a micro group. We're gonna be talking about those more in the next few weeks anyway. But you can do it without resources. Just if you have two, three, four, five friends, say, hey, you wanna get together and hold each other accountable and grow together? Uh, start there, that, you, you gotta start there, okay? Um, but there's two men, they're both in this room right now. And we talk almost every single day. We talk through digital mediums and we talk through in person and we help each other grow and we hold each other accountable. And one thing we talk about is our sin. And it's not fun to talk about your sin, but you've gotta have somebody in your life that you're willing to pull back the curtain on and say, all right, let me have it. (laughs) This isn't healthy for me. I need to grow in my relationship with God. And I know I can't do it enough. I'm not willing to lay down my sin and repent, which is a huge word, turn my heart back to God. We are better together in overcoming our sin. And isn't it interesting that one of the things that this guy receives is the forgiveness of his sins. Now, this is before Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know that this guy got baptized. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I'm gonna tell you something. When Jesus tells you your sins are forgiven, don't argue with that, okay? (laughs) This guy gets a unique opportunity for Jesus himself to say with his human mouth, 
son, your sins are forgiven. That is beautiful. And just think about the role that his friends played in that. We're better together to overcome our sin. I could talk more about that, but I won't. I'll keep going to the last one. Finally, we are better together to heal from our hurting. I opened with this story about this Italian community, Rosetta, Pennsylvania. They had staggeringly good health, and it was because of togetherness. There's a twist to the story. Because something started to happen in the late 1960s and by 1970. Uh, the city of Rosetta began to grow. Many other people from other cultures began to move there. They built businesses, they created jobs, they bought houses, they started schools. And the multi-generational living situation began to break up. As some of those families got older and probably grandparents passed away and and the allure of modern culture started to kind of infiltrate this very uh, kind of ancient city. And as the modern world arrived in 1971, the first resident of Rosetta died of a heart attack under the age of 55. It got worse that by the time we get to the 1980s, the death rate and the causes of death in Rosetta were equal to that of the rest of America. When we break down community, we lose our ability to heal together. And there's this beautiful intersection in the story of the man on the map between the physical healing and the spiritual healing that happens in his life. Do you see that? He has a sense forgiven. He also gets healed from his disability. And I think that they're almost inescapably intertwined. That we need to have each other for the holistic approach, psychological healing, social healing. We need each other for all of that. And it all is rooted in spiritual stuff. Two quick stories. I was able to reconnect with a friend earlier this week. Um, This person, he was very involved in our church family here for years and uh, had to move away for work. And when we met him, he was was deeply involved in some uh, substance abuse and it was rough. It was rough. And, and through this community and through, through togetherness, uh, he was able to get a lot of help and he came through it and he, he got out of it. It was really, really good. Um, he moved away and in his new city, he just hasn't been able to find community. It's been a couple years. And when I ran into them this week, found out that, that he completely gone back into his addiction. He didn't have people around. I felt like it was a time where I could just say, bro, you, you got to be with people. And, I, and I, wish, I wish that I could live where you live, but I don't. And you got to step out and just go get help. Um, I see an, an exchange between the story of Rosetta and, and this friend. On the flip side, a second story, uh, I want to celebrate for a second the life of Bob Zimmerman. Um, week, week, before life, uh, week, week before last, Bob passed away. A lot of you know Bob. Um, and, ah, man, love, love, love Bob. And what a lot of you might not know, uh, unless you were at the funeral this week, um, is that Bob was a guy who struggled with substance abuse for a long time, decades, actually. It, it, really, it really was part of his life. It affected him socially, it affected him financially, it affected him psychologically, his, his mind, uh, affected a lot of things. And, and, but when we met him here at Venture Church, he was clean. He'd been clean for a long time. I think 11, 12 years, something like that. Is that about right? Um, and uh, he'd been clean, but when I met him, it was our first day of church that we ever had here in this room, actually. And he walked up to me, he said, Chris, I heard this was the church for the messed up people. We have an advertisement, you know, it's kind of a motto we use, we're church for people who don't like church. And uh, he said, I heard this was the church for the messed up people. I said, yeah, yeah, that's about right. He goes, good, I'm in the right place. 
later that week we had coffee. He said, Chris, I'm 58 years old, and I think it's about time I get my life straight. And he began to pursue community. He began to pursue togetherness. He began to pursue Jesus. And I had the honor of baptizing Bob into Christ and his wife, Jerry, and meeting so much of their family through that. Bob's life was different. It was, it was changed. And many of you in this room right now can tell you the benefit of Bob in your life. Because I know for a fact that at our church, we've got particularly men that he worked with that struggled with whether it was substance abuse or other types of addiction and that either Bob's story was an inspiration to you or Bob sat with you one-on-one. He came to our men's retreat. He sat in small groups. He did Venture Basics, which was a class we've done a lot that maybe some of you took with. And when I got to the honor of officiating his his celebration of life service this past week, uh, it was a moment where we left the floor open for people to talk. It was beautiful to see a cross-section of Bob's life. As over and over, people spoke up and said, Bob helped me through addiction. Bob helped me to grow my faith. Bob helped me to be a better dad, a better man. Bob would stand on this stage. Actually, Bob would never stand on this stage. He wouldn't do it. Bob would tell you, nah, I didn't do nothing. (laughs) But the lesson there is that we are better together to heal in a hurting, physical hurting, emotional hurting, Social hurting, our world needs it. Spiritual hurting. And I wanted to make sure that I told a story about Bob today because it's important to remember the lives of people who make a difference. And his story is all of our story. I hope that right now we are collectively dragging people up on a roof, each other, right now. And one by one, we get lowered to the feet of Jesus that we can acknowledge our brokenness and our need for community and our need for healing from sin and our need for healing from the mess of this world and that we can realize we're better together. Let me pray for us.